sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted political majority who like their politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you enjoy what you hear today, please share it with one friend you think would like it too. The independent media movement grows by word of mouth. Now, in the last two episodes, we dug into the history surrounding America's last major investment in infrastructure in the 1950s, and we learned it had some very large, very unintended consequences for our nation's cities, and arguably some intended consequences for communities of color. And I really wanted to dig more into the issue, and I'm going to revisit in future episodes, but I also wanted to get the take of my good friend Arjun Murthy from The Factual to discuss some polling that he ran on thefactual.com. And the arguments he heard from his readership are similar to what we've heard in the larger national debate, which a few surprises, which I will share for this very episode itself. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So this is the serious thing I want to talk to you about, Arjun. Though, and this is this is the this is the variable I talked about, mm-hmm. which is, but you know, before we get into the meat of this conversation, last episode we did together, you were dealing with a puppy that was chewing a soldering iron. I remember distinctly because <laughs> it was That's such right. a unique pairing. So since we last spoke, we now have a puppy in the house. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That puppy is sitting here to sleep on my slipper. And that's where I like him because (laughs) I'm learning how many things there are in this room to chew. So now we've got, now we've got this puppy and he's, and he's really great. I was like, I was actually in, in ranking order of the six people in my house who, in terms of who wanted a dog, I was number six, if not like seven or eight. Like I was like, I, last thing I wanted was another to do right and but now i have them and i really like them i like having them around and i didn't think i'd i'd bond with them so quickly but he and i are are pretty good friends and he's alone with me like most of the day now so yes i love my dog but she is such a handful because she eats everything everything don't eat everything good lord (laughs) crazy dog this you realize like this is going to be a good five to ten minutes of every conversation we have for like the next couple months and so we've made a bunch of lifestyle changes it's, it's somewhat inevitable yeah that's <laughs> we're we're in that process and i'm being super stubborn so i want to once again explain what it is the factual does again full disclosure this is not a paid promotion i am a huge fanboy of what you're doing at the factual and want to make sure everybody knows so for those of you who are here for the first time and have never listened to an episode I've done with Arjun before. Arjun is co-founder and CEO of The Factual, which is a news site that ranks news stories based on partisan lean and accuracy so readers can find the most accurate news stories. So they have it on a website and a newsletter. You should go check it out at thefactual.com. And uh, two of my favorite features, Arjun, as I mentioned before, is number one, the underreported news. So there are lots of stories that nobody's talking about. 
that I find on the factual. And number two are the polls of your readers, where you ask a question every day about something going on in current events and they answer and they can answer yes, no, or unsure. How'd I do anyway? Was that? That's perfect. No, that's great. You nailed it. Um, My elevator pitch is really, is really getting good here. So I was doing a series on infrastructure. You ran a poll on the infrastructure bill. First off, before these conversations, I always look at the results. Typically, there's a very measured conversation, like even about the most controversial issues, people are pretty toned down. Am I incorrect in saying that in the infrastructure poll, people ran kind of hot? Am I wrong there or, or no? No, no, I think that's very right. It's uh, that poll did very well in terms of sort of participation. We had 852 votes, 150 comments. And I think it's just a headline of 3.5 trillion at the time. It's now been scaled back considerably by the Democrats. Yeah. But whether you were Democrat or Republican, that number just sounded really big. And everyone yeah. thought, I, what, what's going on here? I need to know this. I want to weigh in. And, you know, with the factual polls, we give a lot of contextual information. It may be the biggest thing this year in the United States. And there's a lot of big things that we have this year. But this one seems to be gripping everyone. Yeah. And the funny thing, too, is so we've done, we've covered critical race theory. And we've covered withdrawal from Afghanistan, which are two highly contentious issues. Yes. The emotions were muted. In those conversations, like I was really shocked when we're talking about like repairing roads and bridges and free daycare that people would just <laughs> really choose to just open up. But they they did. What were what were some of the bigger trends you saw? Well, you know, at a high level, first of all, the question that we asked is, do you support the Democrats three point five trillion dollar infrastructure plan? And mm -hmm. we had sixty nine percent say no, twenty five percent say yes and six percent say unsure. And for those of you who might not be familiar, the, the readership of the factual sort of spans all 50 states in the U.S. It's very diverse. We think it's a pretty good cross-section of the U.S. Most people believe they're either independents or moderate Republicans or Democrats. And from poll to poll, you'll see an aggregate consensus that can swing conservative one day and liberal the next day and back and forth or sometimes down the middle. So it's not consistently one way. So to have almost 70% vote no on that original bill, I think is a meaningful signal that mm -hmm. maybe not just Republicans, but even Democrats, perhaps moderate Democrats are a little skittish about this bill. And then when you dive into details, what really pops up is that the definition of infrastructure that the Democrats are using is quite expansive. And it can be reasonable depending on, you know, whether you buy their arguments, like, you know, childcare can be considered infrastructure if you think about it as key to helping people, you know, carry out their jobs and do the things that they're supposed to. But if you think about infrastructure in a traditional sense, it's usually been more of the hard stuff, the bridges and roads and potholes. And mm -hmm. so that really jumps out at people saying, wait a minute, you're kind of bastardizing the definition of infrastructure and throwing all of your rocks in here. When the last major infrastructure bill was passed, which was the interstate highway system, that was a new definition of infrastructure. So that was a new definition of the government's role in you know, building out roads. And so I, I definitely understand the argument. At the same time, I would also say that the, the, the definition of infrastructure has, has redefined 
America's role in in people's lives, I think. There there also seemed to be an interesting thing, which is there seemed to be a bit of a soak the rich sentiment on the side or on the on the side of the people who are really for it. There's definitely some of that. You know, it's yeah. sort of time for the rich to pony up. That's a little tangential because this isn't so much about making rich people pay for the infrastructure. The proposals to change taxation in the United States by the Democrats, but I don't think is really part of this bill. I think that's separate. So this isn't so much of, it's a little misguided, I think, to say, you know, the rich ought to pony up when it comes to infrastructure. I think that's uh, orthogonal. Mm-hmm. What's going on here is one, like I said, the, the, the definition is broader than it's been used in the past. That makes people a little worried. Second, I think overall, people have this uh, sense that we are borrowing a lot of money. And I don't know a lot about economics and finance, but it seems like someday someone's going to call us on that debt, right? Like, isn't that, isn't that bad? And a variety of people have tried to explain this in a, in a sensible way. One of the better ones being you shouldn't think about the debt as a raw number, but more as a fraction of GDP, because then it allows you to understand in the context of the size of your economy. And what we are able to see now is that the debt we're going to carry is the highest it's ever been as a fraction of GDP, even more than World War II. Mm-hmm. Mind you, it's not that much more than World War II, where it was, I think, about 100% of GDP. So we're now, whatever, north of 100%. So it's bad. It's not excruciatingly bad if you looked at World War II, but it is still pretty high. And so I think a lot of reasonable Americans are like, is this going to bankrupt the country or hurt my children's future if suddenly the U.S. dollar is no longer the currency that people believe in? And we can't just issue bonds left, right, and center. Is that going to be bad for the future? I'll add to that, too, which is when the U.S. came out of World War II, we were something like 25% of GDP and owned 75% of the world's gold. So we were in a very, very strong economic position. Uh, I think it, it, it could be argued that that position is substantially weakened. First off, we don't own 75% of the world's gold. We are no longer 25% of GDP. And add to that, we have an aging population that is going to be asking more of the government than workers are putting in. And so, yeah, there's a lot of factors there that I think make it worrying. The, the second thing I'd bring up, and this is something I, I learned as I dug into this subject in the past couple episodes, is that whenever the government does something really large, whenever the government decides to do something like build a build a highway system that creates changes in the way people live and so for example the reason you and i and most americans are married to their cars is because we have a subsidized road system that chains us to them effectively that's right and if that same investment had been made in public transit for example you know that might fundamentally change things so i guess like you know from my perspective it's partly the debt but it's also partly what new rigid systems are we creating that we're ultimately going to be paying bills on years from now? As a sidebar, there's a great book called The Fast Food Nation. It's quite old now. It's 2001 by this guy named Eric Schlosser. And he talked about how fast food industry shaped a lot of the way we live. And mm-hmm. drive throughs 
there's sort of this implicit partnership with the car companies and drive-throughs or fast food nation or, or fast food restaurants that increased car ownership, had these drive-through restaurants, sort of a new way of life, and then it all comes together with well, you need bigger roads, you need more suburbs. Yeah, it's it's funny too because with with the polls you do, it's it's generally not as conclusive. So it's very rare that you get that level of support for one position. They're also way more unsure's. And that's the funny thing is I'm actually kind of stumped on the issue myself. I think that's in most of the poll questions we ask, I've always secretly said the right answer is probably unsure because there's such complex topics and I could argue it both ways. In this one, you know, if you're trying to get a pulse on the country, my sense is our poll is probably giving a pretty good pulse. People are skittish about this plan. And then just Mm -hmm. yesterday, of course, there were all these elections around the country uh, city, gov- uh, governor elections, et cetera. And Democrats didn't perform particularly well and far left socialist candidates didn't do particularly well. So I think the signal that should be coming out is, hey, this infrastructure bill, if you believe that it is really important and critical for the nation to advance, well, the messaging and the education around it has been insufficient. But the vast majority are still skittish. And if you want to bring along the country as a whole, or at least the majority of the country, well, then you still have work to do. I don't think people are there yet. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that analysis as well. And I think if the results of the of your of the factuals poll are any indication, I would say that confirms it. I think there is an argument among democratic circles that they didn't do enough. And if they had passed the infrastructure bill, then things would have been fine. But I I, I don't know if I by that argument. What I found with our polls especially is you have a segment of the of the country that generally supports the Democrats no matter what, and a segment that mm-hmm. only supports the Republicans no matter what. But the factual readership is more in the middle moderates, who I think decide the fate of many outcomes, whether it's elections mm-hmm. or bills, because they're the ones that will swing a little bit either way. And if yeah. so many of them are a little skittish on this, then I don't think you have the core of the country on board. I, I, think, I think you're right there. If you look at the way American elections work, you have your Democrats, your Republicans, they're going to vote Democrat or Republican regardless. They're about a third. That's Out of that remaining 40%, the bulk of them lean one way or the other. You know, so they either, they'll either vote Republican or not at all, vote Democrat or not at all. And then there's this group in the middle that have no lean and effectively vote like some ritual sacrifice to the corn god where, you know, we have a good harvest and the economy's good, then yay, we'll vote for the incumbent. And if not, we're going to get them out. And, and the, a lot of elections are determined number one by those swing voters, but I think more importantly by the disenchantment that those leaners have. It's really about keeping the leaners home as much as it is about getting your base out. 40% folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more. And that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition. And in the right numbers, 
we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. I think, you know, there's, there's sort of overarching concerns that exist even before this. If you believe, for example, that the government is a good steward of public money and spends public money well, then you mm-hmm. probably think this bill is more than I want, but it's, it's important. If, on the other hand, you think the government is not a good steward of money and tends to be wasteful, then it's easy to understand why this is just not going to go over with you. And Mm -hmm. I think when the number gets really, really big, even the people that are normally in favor of government spending would be like, I don't know. I feel like uh, this money doesn't get spent properly uh, all the time. So it's an incomplete comment. If I recall correctly, in some cases, it was a majority of funds to not get deployed. But suffice to say, it's... 3.5 3.5 trillion is such a large number. It's hard to even get your head around it sometimes. An interesting thing I learned in, in doing this series was the interstate highway system began construction on that in 1957 with a goal of completing it in 10 years. Do you know what year the interstate highway system was officially finished? Isn't that 70? 1992. Oh, really? Wow. A little over 10 years. They kind of overshot that a bit. But part of the reason was, is roads are an easy way to deliver money to the district. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing I learned is that right around 1992, China started its own infrastructure initiative, right? Building roads, trains, and so on. They got theirs done at a substantially lower cost. And part of the reason they got it done is because it was centrally planned which is very un-American in concept, where you have this national government executing the project. But the, the economist I spoke with about this said that the problem you have in the U.S. is that funds are distributed at the state level, and then the states hire a hodgepodge of contractors. And by the time that money gets distributed, it's sent to smaller, less efficient outfits. And his recommendation was actually get a national infrastructure service that does it all. Get like one or two contractors. Like we have you know, Boeing and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon for defense because it doesn't make sense to have 8 million different people making fighter jets. Same thing with roads. I think one other thing that's peculiar with the U.S. is mm-hmm. we have a lot of People who would want to say, well, before you build that, we need to study the impact on this and the impact on that. But what it tends to do is add time and cost. And so mm-hmm. by the time you actually get all the approvals you need and all the legal mumbo jumbo you've gone through, you've spent a lot of time and money. So 
you know, what the benefit China has is they don't care about those things. But I mean, you, Bingo. yeah, but do you want to live in that society? Like they'll bulldoze your house. They'll tear down the forest in the middle. They'll relocate, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of people in a village just because it goes through where they want to. Like that's a yeah. pretty draconian place to live too. So I don't know that we could, we can't go that extreme either. No, I would say central planning has its limits. Right. Certainly. But you, you touch on a real you touch on a really interesting theme, and this is something I saw as I was going through the comments on this poll, which is one of the overarching themes is the idea of coercion. The idea that it's not the federal government's role to take this heavy hand in terms of making decisions for all of us and redistributing wealth. The system doesn't work for the majority of us. We need the government to step in and do something. At least the ones who are talking, who are taking more like the tax hike approach rather than talking about the project itself. Yeah. You know, they kind of viewed it almost as a redistributive scheme in a way. I think what's interesting is to me, where I fall on that when I read the stuff is that there's some types of things where you need uh, national level coordination. I think the pandemic has shown us that public health is sometimes best uh, driven with some level of national level coordination. You know, viruses don't respect borders and they move so fast. It's got to have um, some standards and all these kinds of things. But then there are other things, like if you really wanted to have a daycare plan that ran really well, a national level system may not be as critical, I think, in that case. Do you want the federal government necessarily doing that? I think these are all really good questions uh, to ask. Boy, there are no good answers. I just worry that the U.S. doesn't seem to have a great track record of spending large amounts of money efficiently on large projects. So I think that's that's really the pushback on this. If you actually look at the comments, of, many of them actually like elements of the plan. It would help a lot of families get back to earning and working, especially moms who typically bear the brunt of that work. There are a lot of people that agree with bits and pieces of it. I think what they're saying is, I just don't trust these guys to do this thing right. <laughs> and to, to speak to that as well, you know, getting back to this, to the, to the last major infrastructure project we did, the level of racial injustice baked into the way we planned and constructed highways is well documented. Mm -hmm. So their communities of color were largely the ones that suffered the brunt of it being divided up. Now, the second part of that is if you think about you know, late 50s, early 60s, there were housing laws and redlining. And so now again, you have this scenario where jobs are moving out of the city. You have a group of people who by law can't leave. And so that's just a recipe for disaster. But the thing I'm curious about is, so you have this big federal intervention in the form of transportation, leaves a bunch of people stranded in the cities. You have a second federal intervention in the form of public housing. And so now you have people without access to jobs that have no reason to leave because they have housing that's subsidized and the social consequences are huge. There's no real strong track record of the U.S. spending a ton of money and having it end well, you know? But by the way, just going to China, because you mentioned it, there are a bunch of planned cities in China that mm -hmm. are now quite empty. Beautiful, tall buildings and big, wide roads and and there's no one living there because yeah. somehow the the economy didn't materialize where they thought it would, et cetera, and they just sort of wasted it. And I think that's always a risk with centrally planned stuff. So 
there's this balance that we have to strike where you want some federal oversight, some central planning so that it's somewhat efficient and consistent, but then also some local and state level work to make sure that it doesn't get allocated by someone that doesn't really understand what that place needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I really could boil it all down, this is so bloody utopian, Dan, but you know, if we truly had public servants that acted in the best interest of their community and mm-hmm. their districts and their states and the country, we would be so much better off. But if you have public servants that sh- solve for the short one and re-election at the next term, not only do they execute poorly, they don't have the trust of the community anymore. It's just, it's bad all around. Like imagine this world where we actually trusted our civil servants. Okay, they didn't do it flawlessly. It's a hard job. But if you think, I don't even trust those guys to execute in the best interest of the community, they're doing it for themselves. Then there's no prayer of success. There's just none, right? Mm-hmm. That, that I think if you could really somehow boil it down, it's the trust that we don't have in our elected officials and our representatives anymore that hurts us the most when we try to do grand things like this. And this is why my number one issue is electoral reform. This is the only issue, because if you look across democracies, the countries that have the highest level of trust in their government also have proportional systems of representation. Yeah, there's definitely something to it. Something's not right about the way we get people into power. It's actually not bad at the local level sometimes. Like I know our local mayor in my town and I know our state representatives and they're actually pretty good guys. And um, I like that they're doing things that are difficult and important and solving for the community and not solving just for a segment of the community. So somehow actually our local governments are sometimes good. I know that's not true everywhere, but once we get to the national level, then it's it, it feels so distant. Uh, and I try, I try to pay attention to their their town halls and things, but it just feels like it's removed. I, I would agree with you 100%. And it's the one thing that keeps me from necessarily calling myself liberal, because I think a lot of the views, I am barely on the left, but I do not necessarily buy into the concept that this large and personal centralized government is going to do anything but breed anxiety. And, and the more distant it is, I think the more anxiety provoking it is. The second part of it, which I really find fascinating, is that if you look at the net payer versus the net taker states, these are states that contribute more in federal income tax than they take, or mm-hmm. states that take more in federal aid than they contribute in tax. The net payer states are actually the blue states. The net taker states typically are the red states. And the interesting thing is that you have these blue states saying, take our taxes, spend our money. And you have the red states saying, we don't want it. The whole allocation of funds is beyond me. It's it's past my expertise, so I couldn't speak to it. But, you know, uh, here's a really simple parable. In, In a lot of countries... It's common for elected officials to take public transit to work and to see them around town. And we're talking federal level folks. I realize this is a very, very odd one, for example, but the former president or prime minister of Iran it was photographed taking a bus, you know, after his term finished. He was like holding on to the, the railing up top, you know, and just, just saying, rough eggs. Yeah, and he's like, wait, don't you the guy who's running the country literally like three weeks ago? And what what I'm getting with that is I think the more that 
these people are part of our communities. They're not mm -hmm. figures of power, but they're part of our communities. The yeah. better it is, and somehow it feels like politicians increasingly get more and more removed from their communities. There's so much showing off in some sense versus yeah. like, just do your job, be part of the community you're supposed to represent. We're all in this together. I almost wish they were nameless and faceless at some level. This you should just be one of us because we're all we're all yeah. in the same in this together. Anyways, have you ever heard about the lottery theory? No, of democracy. So the lottery concept is instead of electing officials, oh yeah, one person in the district just wins office. That's right. <laughs> which I, I think could have some benefits. There's something I don't know. I, I I that might be going you know to one extreme of the spectrum. I'm starting to think about everybody I've seen who's won the lottery, and <laughs> none of them I would want representing me in Congress. So I'm going to rescind that endorsement right there. Like I think you know, with the politicians' defense, it's a very tough job representing yeah. thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of people on complex issues that will positively impact some segments and negatively impact other segments and there's finite resources to go around, you will never come out looking great across the board. It's a tough job. Mm -hmm. Let's just say it's a tough job. But sometimes I feel like the way that they execute, it feels like they're scoring points. Well, I mean, the incentive system is you get more intent, you get more attention dunking on somebody on Twitter than you do walking across the aisle and finding a compromise. And that leads to more donations, which leads to more partisan clout, which incentivizes you just being a jerk on social media. Yeah. I have one, one final question for you. And I'm going to ask yes. you to postulate entirely. So this will not be evidence-based. <laughs> We're not going to hold you to this. I just want to, I want to know what you think. Yeah. Do you think this bill, would have been more successful as a series of smaller bills? I think they would have passed something much, much faster because there are parts yeah. of this bill that actually a lot of people agreed on. Virtually everyone yeah. agrees that our airports and our roads and especially our bridges are deficient. I mean, how many bridges have we had fall in the last few years? That's just like embarrassing and dangerous. Yes. So I think you would have near uniform support if you separated the parts that are more the Democrats' pet rocks. And so, you know, it's a strategy. And if you as a voter believe that those pet rocks are really critical, like pre-K funding and, and some of the other things that are in there, pay family leave, et cetera, then it was the right call to not break up the bill because we need to have it all go through. Climate change and all the things that are going on in climate, boy, if that's a big concern for you, as it probably should be for most of us, then saying, great, you built roads and airports. Congratulations. We're going to be submerged in 50 years on you know, five feet of water. What are you going to do then? How's your airport going to work then? Yeah, right. So something about the way that it was communicated is deficient. I think the majority of the country is not on board. On what yeah. a lot of people agree are good things. Just, I don't know, for one reason or another, they couldn't get their act together to bring the country aboard. So that's on them. That's on them. It's not that the ideas are bad. The execution is poor. And when they fail to pass the bill, they should look at their execution and say, what did we do up here? Well, Arjun, I've done a good job containing my desire to go on tangents. <laughs> I'm here with you a lot of time. Thank you again for the time. And 
Happy Diwali, by the way. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Happy Diwali to you as well. Yes, the Festival of Light, a beautiful day today. Hope everyone who's listening is having a good, good day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review. I don't know if you've heard this before, but this podcast grows by word of mouth. That poll we discussed today, an additional insight into news and policy can be found on The Factual, that is F-A-C-T-U-A-L dot com. Be sure to check it out. Now, the interesting thing about this conversation is that I'm leaving this series still stumped on whether this infrastructure bill is a good thing, because in many ways, I've come to believe that the highway system has really subsidized an unsustainable way of life in this country and spending 1.5 trillion to give it more life seems foolish on the other hand letting our bridges collapse while we wait for a better idea to come along doesn't seem like the most prudent approach either and i think the takeaway and this is something arjun made in this episode is that this country has a really bad track record when it comes to spending lots and lots of money. And we really need only look at the return from the last 20 years of military spending to know this. And this may sound weird coming from me, for those of you who've listened to this for a while, but I really feel like maybe keeping things status quo and not creating another large, unwieldy federal bureaucracy is the way to go. You know, I'm not saying things like subsidized childcare and free college are bad, but I am saying that we have a way of creating fiscally unsustainable traps with these investments. And you need only look at our interstate highway system, public housing, even Social Security to give you evidence of that. I would love to hear your thoughts on the subject, so feel free to send your suggestions criticisms, hate mail, and otherwise to Hey Dan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at Dan Sally, D-A-N-S-A-L-L-Y. I will be sure to feature your feedback on upcoming episodes. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor and producer is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in Snake Killer Studios in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye bye.